scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. They say the hardest thing a parent can go through is losing a child. It seems so unnatural, so out of order. Children should live to bury their parents, not the other way around. Statistically, most marriages don't survive the loss of a child. The pain is too deep. The wound too hard to heal. The love that created the child turns inward and grows cold. So much hope that was wrapped up in the child is now gone. If anyone hearing this sermon has had to live through that, you have my deepest condolences. I've experienced terrible loss, but not the loss of a child. I'm sorry for starting off this sermon with such a solemn topic, but we need to get emotionally involved in in our text today in order to really understand. The story has pathos, deep pathos. I'm talking, of course, about the story of Abraham and Isaac. This is one of the most confusing episodes in the entire Bible, and definitely one for Abraham. In Genesis 22, he is called upon to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his own son. But what Abraham sees as a terrible tragedy, God turns into the greatest blessing known to man. But before we get to the blessing, we need to understand the context of this story. In the previous chapter, Abraham lost his firstborn son. At Sarah's urging, he sent Ishmael and his mother away into the wilderness of Beersheba. This would have been likely a death sentence, but God had promised Abraham that Ishmael would also be the father of numerous descendants. But as far as Abraham was concerned, his firstborn son was dead to him. He had no promise that he would ever see Ishmael again. He was surely still mourning the loss of his son when Yahweh said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Why would Elohim call Isaac Abraham's only son if Ishmael was still alive? Because he had sent Ishmael away. In fact, if it wasn't clear the first time, the phrase, your only son, is repeated in verses 12 and 16. God himself is making it clear that Ishmael, though alive, is no longer Abraham's son. In sending Ishmael away, Abraham had made it clear that Ishmael no longer had an inheritance from Abraham. Abraham's heart must have been doubly broken at the thought of losing Isaac, too. It wouldn't be surprising if he was struggling with a sense of bitterness towards Yahweh, since both sons had been lost at his command. Ishmael 
didn't have to go away. Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed. Yet God told him to do both. On the journey to Moriah, he was likely wondering, how will I explain this to Sarah? If you don't have compassion for Abraham in this story, you better check your pulse to make sure you're still alive. More than the pathos of this story, there's an integral reason why Ishmael had to be essentially dead for the story to make sense. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, I want to review the evolution of Yahweh's promises to Abraham, or rather, Abram. The first promise God made to Abram was at the beginning of chapter 12 and included land, numerous descendants, and that he would be a blessing. A few verses later, Elohim reiterated the promise, but only mentioning the land. The promise of land is interesting because Abraham and the next few generations of his descendants all appear to have been Bedouin. From what the Bible tells us, they seem to be perfectly at home as nomads, living in tents and regularly moving from one region to another, just as the Bedouin continue to do to this very day. I have to admit, I'm so far removed from that culture that I'm not sure what value owning land would have for them. I only sleep in a tent a few nights a year, and only if I choose to do so. Tent living was pretty much all they knew. The Bible tells us that Abraham left the land of Ur with his dad and family, but it's unlikely that they had been city dwellers who gave it up for the nomadic life. The promise of land wasn't an indication that God was telling Abraham to give up the Bedouin way of life. There's no reason he couldn't keep moving from one season to the next for the best pasturage for his animals. If anything, it probably had to do with being able to dig wells to claim as his own and a place to bury his dead, both of which Abraham eventually did in the land that he owned. It also gave first rights to the pasture areas. What I don't know is if owning land was really a big deal in that nomadic culture or not. The next promise in chapter 13 includes both land and numerous descendants. This was probably about as much as any man could hope for in the ancient Near East. You could compare that to fame and fortune for most people today. Or for the younger folk, it was like God saying that Abraham would be a highly successful social media influencer. Every time the Old Testament refers to having many children, specifically males, it is always considered a blessing. Our culture today is much more on the fence about having children. The fourth, fifth, and sixth promises from God keep adding additional elements. In chapters 15 and 17, God included a covenant. The fifth promise in chapter 17 also includes circumcision as a sign of the covenant. The covenant also now includes obedience on Abraham's part. Previous to this, God's promises had been very one-sided. But now Yahweh was expecting something in return. The sixth promise in chapter 18 breaks from the pattern and simply promises a son within a year. 
This one also was witnessed by Sarah. After all this, we finally get to today's passage in chapter 22, which also includes a promise with an element we haven't seen before. God said, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. We see the promise of numerous descendants repeated. Elohim also gives a reason for this blessing, which is Abraham's obedience. This, of course, points back to the previous promises that I just mentioned, where circumcision and obedience were added requirements. We see only an indirect promise of land this time through victory in battle. The key promise, however, was that all the nations of the world will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. The Hebrew word for nations also means peoples. So it is basically saying all people will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. That's an amazing promise, and one that probably Abraham couldn't possibly comprehend. But we know what Elohim was referring to. Jesus, born a descendant of Abraham. Through Jesus, eternal salvation, forgiveness of sins, and life in the presence of God became possible. But this isn't the first connection with Jesus in this story. In fact, the entire story is a remarkable prefiguring of Christ's passion. Let's go back and look again to see the points of connection. I already mentioned how it was important that Isaac was Abraham's only son. Jesus was the only son of the father. Abraham and Isaac journeyed three days to get to the land of Moriah. Jesus was in the tomb three days. This adds to our understanding of the pathos here. We realize that from the moment God told Abraham what he must do, Isaac was dead. Getting the command from God was Isaac's Good Friday, but he didn't even know it. Imagine the internal suffering of Abraham during the three-day journey, knowing what was to come. Verse 6 tells us that Abraham placed the wood of the sacrifice on his son. In other words, Isaac was carrying the wood for his own sacrifice, just as Christ did with the cross. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Verses 7 and 8 makes the connection between Isaac and Jesus even stronger when Isaac asked the logical question, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham answers, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Of course, Abraham's answer was true, though ambiguous. I believe Abraham was holding on to hope that God would intervene, though he couldn't know for sure. But even if God didn't, 
It was Yahweh himself who made it possible for Isaac to be born. So if Isaac were to be the sacrifice, he was provided by God, making Abraham's statement absolutely true. Roughly 1,700 years later, God did provide his own son as the lamb for the final sacrifice. In verse 9, Abraham bound Isaac. According to Matthew 27, 2, Jesus was bound in order to be taken to Pilate. Now we come to verse 12, where the angel intervenes, saying, Do not lay your hand on the lad. This is Isaac's Easter. He was as good as dead, and now he is returned to life. I can only imagine what a relief and joy for both Abraham and Isaac. We tend to emphasize the overwhelming pathos of Abraham through all this, but what about Isaac? Imagine his terror at being bound and placed on a woodpile to be killed by his own father. The one he had loved and trusted his entire life was now to be his executioner? Poor Isaac. Isaac was the unwilling Jesus. He didn't know what was happening, and we can be confident that he wasn't willing. Jesus, on the other hand, knew all along exactly what was going to happen and even ensured that it did. This is where the story of Isaac and Jesus diverge. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that Isaac is a foreshadowing of the passion of Christ, but it's only with a closer reading that we see all the points of connection that make the Isaac-Jesus connection indisputable. There is another point of connection that is important for us to understand. This event in the life of Abraham is not a universal message for us to apply. God isn't asking any of us to sacrifice their child. You're welcome. In fact, quite the opposite. When child sacrifice was common in the ancient Near East, this practice was abhorrent to Yahweh. No one today should think that God will bless them for sacrificing a child. In the same way, God isn't asking anyone to die for the sins of another. Jesus died for our sins, so no one else has to. We are called to imitate Jesus, but not to the point of dying for the sins of others, as if that were possible. Although they were very similar in many ways, the purpose of the two sacrifices was completely different. Jesus died to pay the ransom for our sins. Isaac was nearly sacrificed as a test of faith for Abraham. This test seemed unnecessary. Didn't God already know what was in Abraham's heart? But because Abraham had waited so long for a child, there would be the temptation to make an idol out of his son. All his hopes were pinned on Isaac. 
His child was so important to him, God needed to know, and maybe just as importantly, Abraham needed to know that Yahweh, and only Yahweh, was still his God. And remember, it was this testing that made God declare the coming blessing of the entire world through Abraham's line. Everyone who has ever walked the planet has faced the temptation to follow a false god, to write their own gospel. In the time of, the ancient, of ancient Israel, the temptation to follow the gospel of Baal was the primary way people went astray. According to E.S. Cowdrick, we now follow the new economic gospel of consumption. Do we need any convincing that this is true? As John Mark Comer wrote, Amazon.com is the new temple, double-clicking the new liturgy. Just like Abraham's temptation to make Isaac into an idol, we too face that challenge every day. Whether it's consumption, or health, or politics, or social media, or an addiction, we are constantly being tempted to wander from our first love. Also like Abraham, we may be tested. God may be asking us even now to give up something that seems absolutely insane to us. We cannot follow more than one gospel. Yet so many areas of life are clamoring for more of our time and attention. It's no longer enough for consumption to merely meet our physical needs and now demands our sense of belonging and identity. So too does politics. The gospel of political involvement is particularly strong in this presidential election year. As James Smith wrote, the political sphere is no longer satisfied with second place. So like Abraham, we must do two things. First, we must not lose hope. No matter what the advertisers, politicians, or influencers are saying, it's not all up to you. The end of the world isn't just around the corner. And they aren't the only ones who can save us. In fact, none of these false gospels can save us. We need to put our hope in the only one who will not let us down, Jesus Christ. We must remember that God himself will provide. And we know this is true because Romans 8.32, in echoing the words of the angel to Abraham, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? God is the only one who can and will meet all our needs so we can hope with confidence. The second thing we must do, like Abraham, is born out of the first. We must act. We take steps of obedience to God, knowing that our Lord is good 
and able to take what little we offer and do amazing things with it. If we lacked hope in Jesus, we would be paralyzed. We would see all the darkness in the world around us and think, what can I possibly do against all that? Or the opposite reaction would be to dive right in headfirst, doing all that we can to save the world, mistakenly thinking that it's up to us to save everyone from all our ills. Both approaches lack hope in the kingdom of God. Both approaches can also be taken to the sin we see in ourselves. No, we act with confidence, knowing that God will do the rest. And that as we act, though we may fall short, the Spirit is right there with us, drawing us closer every day. Little is much when God is in it. Even though in the end, Abraham was not required to sacrifice Isaac, we still, sorry, he still suffered greatly in the days and hours before the angel stopped him. Isaac, too, our unwilling Jesus. But as a result of his faithfulness, Abraham was given the promise of a Savior for the world through his own bloodline. Because Jesus was a willing sacrifice, Isaac didn't have to be. Because Jesus was the willing sacrifice, we can live with a sure hope. Because Jesus was the willing sacrifice, we can act in obedience, knowing that through the Spirit, our actions can have eternal significance, despite our own failings. Because Jesus was the willing sacrifice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.